Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Gringo Horst. In this episode, we chat with Phil Filthy Granfield about flying and testing the F-14 Tomcat and F-18 Hornet with VX-4 of the Air Test and Evaluation Squadron. He also chats about flying the F-14B with VF-154, the Black Knights. So, if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can also donate by going to aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Calibre Wings, who produce detailed scale die-cast models that strive to deliver a detailed experience that incorporates light weathering and colour toning that start from their Wave 3 models. This is finally bundled into a nice collector's box with dedicated illustrative box art to match. To purchase the models that have been shown, please visit CaliberWings.com. Thank you. Well, Phil, when did you first become interested in aviation? When I was uh, going to college, uh, I knew that I wanted to be in the Navy. I was on a uh, ROTC scholarship, but I didn't know that I wanted to fly until uh, during one of my summer midshipman cruises, I got to fly in a TA-4, and oh, wow. that's, that's what did it for me. I said, this is what I want to do, but it wasn't until then. It wasn't a young kid growing up around airplanes, uh, so it was pretty late in life, but uh, it was that one ride in the A-4 that hooked me. Very nice. So um, what year did you join the U.S. Navy, and why did you pick the Navy? My dad was in the Navy. My granddad was in the Navy, so it's uh, uh, great uncles in the Navy. So it was in my blood. Uh, so I went off to college again with the Navy scholarship. Uh, I graduated in 1977, was commissioned in the Navy, and I got my wings in 1979. What were the, some of the aircraft you trained on before you went to your frontline uh, jet? Uh, the very first airplane I ever flew was a T-28 on my first flight in flight school. I'd, I'd never flown any light airplanes before that. So it was a T-28, a large radial engine. Glad I got to fly that. Then I transitioned from there to the T-2 Buckeye, and then from there to the F-4. So yes, the F-4, the mighty F-4. Um, so was that one of your choices, or did you just get posted to that? Uh, it was. I wanted to fly fighters, and when I got my wings, there were four Navy F-4 squadrons left. The Navy had already transitioned to the F-14 about seven years before I got my wings, 1972, 73. So I, I uh, wanted to fly F-4s, or I wanted to fly fighters, and I got assigned to one of those last four squadrons at Miramar in San Diego. Uh, glad I got to do it. Ended up flying a 1,000 hours in the F-4. Um, so I was one of the last few guys that got that opportunity. So it was great. I bet, yeah. So what were some of your squadrons with the F-4? I was in VF-21, one of the last two squadrons in San Diego, VF-21 and 154. There were two squadrons out in Japan on the USS Midway at the time. Uh, so that was my only squadron in F-4s. And then from there, I went to VX-4, which is a test and evaluation squadron, which is where I transitioned to the F-14. And the F-18 was an operational test at the time. So Brilliant. Uh, great timing for that. So then you just you mentioned before that you got transitioned to the F-14 and the F-18. Is this an unusual path? Because two types at one time seems a lot to take on. Yeah, it was unusual in that also when I, I never went through the training squadron. Well, I, I went through the training squadron to get a basic NATOPS qual, but I didn't get a lot of tactical training. And I was in a squadron that was doing tactical training. So I was a bit of a fish out of water as an F-4 guy 
doing operational testing the F-14 and then the F-18. Mm-hmm. But the timing was right that the F-18 was an early operational test at the time, so I got to fly that. So while I was at that squadron, because I was already an F-4 guy, I was flying the F-4, the F-14, the F-18, and the A-4 all at the same time in the same squadron. It was awesome. We'll talk about, a bit about the F-14. So how did your training work uh, once you started uh, flying the F-14? Well, I, I went down to the F-14 training squadron, and I got my basic uh, 10 hours in the simulator in, in flights. But I, like I said, I didn't have any tactical training. So learning about how the radar worked, how to employ the Phoenix, that sort of stuff, I had to pick up as on-the-job training, if you will, when I was up at the VX-4 squadron. Mm-hmm. Um, so I showed up again, and I was uh, I did not have the benefit of a previous tour in the airplane. So I learned all that while I was there. Mm-hmm. And it was a good opportunity to be there at the same time because we were testing the latest missiles, both the upgrades to the Phoenix, the Sparrow, the Sidewinder. I got involved in the tactics at that level, so that's how I learned how to, how to operate the airplane. So how did you find it coming from the F-4 onto the F-14? Was the cockpit uh, and the systems a lot more complicated? It, it was a lot more complicated, a lot more... Uh, the radar in particular, the weapon system was a lot more complex. The Phantom was relatively simple in that respect. Uh, in terms of how the airplane flew, it flew like a Cadillac compared to the F-4, but it was hard to fly. The flight controls weren't as, uh, as smooth as the F-4, as I would call it. Um, it's a lot to learn, that's for sure. And how did you find the wing sweep function? Did it affect uh, your flying at all? Um no, it, once you flew them in auto, uh, the wings programmed, as you probably know, mm-hmm. uh, based upon airspeed. Uh, so what I mostly had to adjust to was in the F-4, the corner speed, the, the best maneuvering speed was about 450 knots. And you never really wanted to get the nose very low. Mm-hmm. The F-14 was a lot more maneuverable that way, particularly in pitch. So you could uh, do a split S at a lot lower altitude. You could get a lot more pitch rate on the airplane put in the F-4. It took me a long time to adapt to that capability that I didn't have in the F-4 that I now had to learn how to fly the airplane differently. So could you talk us through some of the test uh, work you did on the F-14? Uh, most of the work I did was on the AIM-9, the Sidewinder. It was an upgrade to the Sidewinder, the AIM-9 Mike. Uh, so we tested that. I spent a lot of time out at the China Lake ranges uh, doing flight tests there. Uh, one of the issues at the time was the question about the lethality of the Sidewinder and, and did it have enough punch in the warhead because it, it would guide well, it would hit the target, but it wouldn't necessarily take the target down. So a fight I remember t- in particular was against a QF-4 target, a drone target, and they wanted to understand how lethal the Sidewinder was. So it was a live warhead shot, which was unusual, against a live target, uh, not flown by a pilot, but a re- remote control airplane, and the intention was to see if the Sidewinder would take it down. So I flew that mission, and it, in fact, did take it down. Blew up, blew the tail off, and determined the Sidewinder was pretty lethal. So my two and a half years at VX4, I spent mostly dealing with Sidewinder tests. And then, again, the F-18 was brand new to the, to the test community, so I spent some, some time learning how to fly that airplane as well. So what model of F-14 were you flying? F-14A at the time. Uh, back at VX-4, and then in my squadron tour at VF-154, we had F-14Bs, which was essentially the same platform with the big motor. So let's go on to the F-18. So talk us through how different it was 
flying that compared to the F-14? I mean, I'm guessing it was glass cockpit at this time? Glass cockpit, hands-on stick and throttle sorts of technologies, uh, a lot more digital fly-by-wire, of course. Uh, in terms of flying qualities, the F-14, the F-18 was was a lot easier to fly, more maneuverable. Uh, you couldn't feel the stick forces the same way you could at the F-14. Uh, so in terms of just flying the airplane, it's an easier airplane to fly. Mm-hmm. But the learning point for me was in my first two tours in the F-4 and the F-14, I was used to having a radar intercept officer with me. Now I had to do all that by myself, learn how to run the radar. Uh, so the learning point for me was not flying the airplane, but operating the weapon system as a single pilot. That was the first experience for me. So do you think the F-18 was a good replacement for the F-14 in terms of a weapon system? No, it wasn't, in my opinion. <laughs> it was different. Uh, and frankly, in, in the in the wars that we've been fighting in the last 10 years, the F-14 would have been perfect to have around. A lot longer legs, more payload, uh, more complex radar system. But it was built for the Cold War. Uh, it served its time. Um but it still was a still viable platform when it left. So it was, it's a different mission. The, what we would compare to my experience was the F 14, we'd have a hard time with our radar picking up and tracking maneuvering targets. If the bandit started to maneuver, the F 14 wasn't just good at tracking that. Yeah. The F 18 radar on the other hand was very good at tracking maneuvering targets, but it wouldn't pick up a target at long range. So there was a trade off. The F 14 would see the targets a lot further out, but, they could lose them if they started to maneuver. F-18 would catch anything within a, within a much closer range, but uh, once we got them, they, they couldn't get away. Wow. So how long did you spend in the test and evaluation unit? I was there for two and a half years. Uh, again, flying uh, all the all the airplanes. By that time, we weren't using the F-4 to test new systems. We used it a lot for uh, uh, as an adversary. We were testing the F-14 uh, missiles, Phoenix, Sidewinder, and we're testing the F-18 in terms of tactics development. What was the difference between landing an F-18 and an F-14 on the carrier? The techniques are the same. Well, the techniques are different. Flying qualities are different, but the pattern is all the same. So you enter the, the landing pattern the same, altitudes are all the same. The F-18, because of the flying qualities, was easier to fly, if you will. It had a heads-up display, fly-by-wire, the controls were lighter, the, the controls are more responsive and basically an easier airplane to bring aboard the ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, the F-14, on the other hand, was was not fly-by-wire. The bigger wingspan, the roll rate wasn't the same. The uh, the stabilators on, on the tail is how you got rolled out of the airplane. Uh, so it was a it was a lot more of a handful to bring aboard the ship. Um, also, the F-18 was more stable with its nose position. The F-14, every time you added power, you had to do a little nose adjustment. So it was a, it was a lot harder to bring the F-14 aboard. And pilots that were good at it, uh, with, with the landing grades in particular, an F-14 pilot that was good at it was a, was a really good stick. Mm-hmm. It was harder from a, from a grading perspective for the F-14s to beat out an F-18 squadron in terms of grades because it was so much harder. I'm guessing you probably refueled in both the F-14 and the F-18. Can you tell us about this, how they differed? Uh, uh, funny you should say that because uh, one thing we always talk about in carrier aviation is your boarding rate. You want to be able to get aboard the first pass every time. And one of the reasons my boarding rate to land on the ship, particularly that was always pretty good, was one of the things I hated to do was to go air refuel, hmm. particularly at 
Um, because the F-14 was a little bit more ungainly, uh, it was harder to, to refuel in that airplane. The, also, the way the refueling probe would come out is the, the technique is a pilot looks up at the, at the refueling airplane, and you can't really see the, the IFR probe except out of your peripheral vision. So the technique was to keep looking up the refueling airplane and listen to the Rio help you get aboard. Okay. If, you, if you cheated by looking over at the probe, sometimes you would miss it. In the F-18, the probe was a lot further forward, and you could see it a lot easier. And it was a lot more. It's a lot easier to refuel in the F-18 than it was in the F-14. The F-14 took a lot of technique. When you got in close, we call it the bow wave, as the airflow was going around that big nose. It was push the probe away, so you had to finesse it right there in close to get the probe in. I'm fascinated after this. You went on to be an LSO. I mean, a lot of our viewers probably know what it is, but maybe you can explain in a bit more detail what your role was and uh, your duties out there. Sure. Uh, that was one of my favorite tours. The LSO is the landing signals officer. He's the guy that stands on the back of the ship with a radio communicating to the pilot uh, to help pilots get aboard, get aboard the ship. Mm-hmm. So your job was to, as a safety if you will, but we're also there to train the pilots. We would give them a guidance on by adding power, taking power off, line up. And the the um, connection between the pilots and the LSO is sacrosanct, is what I would call it. As a, as a carrier pilot, you're trained to listen to what the LSO tells you without argument. If he tells you to add power, you add power. If he tells you to wave off, you wave off. There was no questions asked there. And then they also grades every landing as well. Mm-hmm. And that was the hardest part about the job because not everybody likes to be graded and it was pretty subjective. But in terms of responsibility, a young lieutenant out there on the back of the ship, he's expected to communicate to all the pilots, most of them more senior to him, and help them to get aboard. Um, on a dark, stormy night with a pitching deck, rain, no horizon, you wanted the LSO there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did that um, as a squadron, as an F-4 squadron LSO, but my tour after the test and evaluation squadron was as, as an air wing LSO responsible for bringing all those airplanes aboard, A-7s, F-14s, E-2s, all, all of those. Wow. So and after that, my next tour was as the senior LSO for the Pacific Fleet, and my job there was primarily to train all the other younger LSOs how to be an LSO, uh, and again, uh, more responsibility than you could, than you would imagine. I can imagine, yeah. A particular landing that I remember, uh, it was a whale, an A3. Uh, he had a, he had a hard time getting aboard. He had bolted several times. They sent him up to the tanker to get refueled. While in the tanker, he broke his refueling probe off. Oh no! So he's coming back down, and he had uh, two more lifts of the deck, or or they would have had to bail out. Uh, I weighed that guy aboard. He ended up skipping the one, two, and the three wire, caught the four wire, uh, and attributed that to him listening to me and him being a good pilot at the same time. But uh, also was a great job. So just going a bit more detail about the LSO, like what would be a typical day for an LSO officer? Um, so all the LSOs were also pilots, and we stood a rotation today. So we normally had four teams of LSOs. So you would have LSO duty every four or maybe five days. And then each recovery, if there was a seven or eight recovery day, the teams would go out there, all the LSOs, there'd be maybe four or five LSOs on the team with one 
and we would rotate who would get the pickle, we call it, at the same time. And then uh, you would work that recovery. And then after the recovery, you would go th walk through all the ready rooms and you would debrief the pilots on how they did. High start, low start, you had too much power here. We would, we would debrief them. And you do that all throughout the day and night. And then the next day you got to fly. So it was a commitment on the LSO's part where you didn't maybe get to fly as much, but because uh, every four days you had to be out on the back of the platform, whether it was sunshine, dark, rainy, stormy. Yeah. It always had to be on the back. Wow, it sounds uh, <laughs> pretty exhausting, that's for sure. So, Phil, can you tell us where you went to after your senior LSO position? Uh, so after that tour, I went to uh, my first uh, uh, fleet F-14 squadron, BF-51, where I was department head. I was the ops officer, the maintenance officer. Uh, went on deployment uh, in the F-14, and by then I was uh, a lot more comfortable with the airplane, knew how it flew, knew how, knew how the radar systems worked. So that was my department head tour uh, in an F-14 squadron. So did you do any uh, DACT at the time with the F-14A on that tour? Sure. Uh, we... Uh, we flew out against the Navy adversary squadrons, A4s and F5s, but we also looked for opportunities all the time to do a DCT or ACM against the Air Force F15s. Uh, in particular, we would like to uh, find dissimilar airplanes. So we flew against F15s, F15Es, uh, Canadians. Uh, they brought down uh, back. This is back in my F4 days. We flew against F104s. No. Yeah, so F-14 pilots live for DACT. So how did the A version uh, fare against, you know, the F-15s and the F-15Es? It was pilot dependent. The F-15s uh, would fly higher than us. They were very ha ha happy above 40,000 feet. In terms of top speed, uh, probably pretty similar. But mm -hmm. the F-14 was was uh, more maneuverable, in my opinion, in close. We could maneuver. We had a lot of, we had a lot of great pitch rate. The F-15 had a lot better roll rate, but we could hold our own against F-15s. So after this uh, deployment, where did you go after this? Uh, after that, I went to uh, Fallon, NAS Fallon, Fallon yeah. in the desert. At the, we call it, at that time, it was called Naval Strike and Air Warfare Center. Yeah. And that's where the air wings would go up and do combined air wing training exercises, uh, where you bring all the squadrons together, and we flew... Um, air wing style missions against the top gun adversaries up in the desert and high desert in Fallon. I did a year tour there. That was great flying. Uh, there I flew the F-14 and the F-18 primarily. Uh, I did a lot of contingency war fighting plans, a lot of operational planning sorts of stuff. It was a great place for the family. Uh, kids were growing up at the time and we spent a lot of time skiing and camping in the, in the high Sierras. Uh, so Fallon was was uh, not everybody loved the town. We loved the town, and the flying could not be beat. As we were, the mission of Strike U at the time was to train air wings, get ready to go on deployment. The current F-14 squadrons caliber wings have in stock are VF-142 Ghost Riders and VF-14 Top Hatters. They are both in 72nd scale with a level of detailed experience one would expect on a high-quality plastic kit. You can check them out by visiting caliberwings.com. Thank you. And then you became the executive officer of VF-124 and the Black Knights. How did this happen? So I screened for command. And uh, at the time, the F-14 community was um, getting smaller. They were starting to decommission some squadrons. 
I was detailed to go to VF-154, the Black Knights in Japan, but because of the timing, I had about a year to kill my tour, so I went back down to San Diego, and VF-124 is the F-14 training squadron. Mm-hmm. I became a flight instructor down there. I was the executive officer of the squadron, uh, basically running it from the administrative perspective. Uh, spent that year in the F-14, uh, teaching people how to fly it. While I was there, uh, that's when Desert Storm started, so I missed that because I was at home. And then after about a year down there, four deployed to Japan uh, with VF-154 on the USS Independence, where I was the XO and then the CO of the squadron out there in Japan. So that's very interesting. We have to talk about that. It's obviously, uh, this is the B version, so how was it different compared to the A? Can you describe that to us for our viewers? The best way to describe it is the, the re- weapon system was the same between the A and the B, same radar. The difference was the engines. In the F-14A, we have TF-30s, uh, and they were very prone to compressor stalls. You had to be very careful with what you did with the throttles. You pretty much left them up at military power or afterburner, and you didn't want to jiggle the throttles around a lot when yeah. you were doing ACT or ACL. The F-14B, uh, F-404 engines, much better engine, and we didn't worry about compressor stalls nearly as much, which allowed you to move the throttles as you needed. So uh, much faster airplane, but mostly it was more maneuverable in terms of being able to modulate the throttles mm-hmm. in the A, you just sort of had to leave them there. That was the biggest difference. Much better airplane, much faster. Everybody loved the B. So let's talk about your time in Japan. So what was your role there, and did you ever interact with the Japanese military? We did all the time. We were stationed at uh, Naval Air Station Atsugi, which was a joint base, essentially. The Japanese were right there on the base. Um, we didn't do a lot of uh, DACT or military exercises with the Japanese, but uh, as a forward deploy unit, our task was to be always ready, so we were always prepared for uh, potential operations in Korea. We worked with the Air Force, uh, also stationed in Japan and Korea. Did a lot. Most of the joint exercises that we did involved uh, other U.S. military and operations in the Japan and Korea. Um, we deployed from there to the Persian Gulf, went on deployments uh, for Operation Southern Watch. We did a lot of training down in Australia and, and some exercises with the Japanese, but we did do a lot of face-to-face interactions with them. I do recall one deployment where we went out uh, to Western Japan, where they were still flying F-4s, and we did some DACT exercises against the uh, Japanese F-4s and our F-14s. So how many crews and jets would be based there? It was one air wing, carry air wing five. So we had two F-14 squadrons. Uh, there was an A-6 squadron, so we still had A-6s at the time. We had two, So we had uh, A-6s, F-18s, F-14s, E-2s, helicopters. It was a standard air wing, air wing five. And what was different about it was because we all lived on the same base, the air wings back in the States, once you get home, you're scattered around. The mm-hmm. F-14s down in San Diego, the F-18s were in Lamore, California. Uh, in Japan, everybody's on the same base. You get to know people a lot better. You get to work as a unit, as an air wing together a lot better because the, the air wings together the whole time. Mm-hmm. Of course. So how did flying differ over in Japan compared to the U.S.? Was the rules more strict or lax? I'd probably say more lax. Uh, in fact, we lax is probably the wrong word, but uh, we actually established a procedure where we could fly from our base at Sugi out to our warning area without uh, IFR or uh, air traffic control. Mm-hmm. We would fly a specific route, 
we would talk to each other on the radio. Even though you were uh, in the clouds, we just coordinated that internally. We stayed at altitudes that weren't going to interfere with uh, commercial air traffic uh, to expedite our ability to get to and from our warning area. That would never happen in the States where you'd be able to fly around without talking to an air traffic controller. Of course. So we did that in Japan. And then, of course, uh, the wide open Pacific, there's uh, – the, the rules there are different in terms of transit. There's just, just a lot of water and uh, not as many divert fields. Um, flying in Western Australia was great. It was like you know, one giant training area. Uh, so, so overall, flying out of Japan in the areas that we operated, I'd say it was a lot less restrictive than operating in the States, Brilliant. which so made, it a lot, made it a lot more fun and realistic, frankly. Yeah. So how long did you spend out there with the family and your squadron? Two and a half years in Japan, and from there we deployed. The cruises were generally shorter. Uh, instead of going for six or seven months, we generally go for four, then we come back and then go back out again. So two and a half years in Japan. Again, the family loved it. Uh, good quality of life, living on the base, uh, meeting our Japanese neighbors when we lived out in town, dealing with all our other air wing buddies. Again, the air wings all together at the same time. All the wives are together at the same time. So it was a, it's a great nice type opportunity. So after this, you went back to the U.S., I'm, uh, I'm assuming. So what did you do after that? Well, as they say, all roads lead to the Pentagon. <laughs> that was my first tour in the Pentagon uh, uh, after my command tour, BF-154. And there I worked for the, op- the uh, operational test and evaluation director for the Office of the Secretary of Defense. My job there was to do oversight of major operational test programs. Going back to my experience at VX4 as an operational test pilot, there's a, a, a command, a unit at the Office of the Secretary of Defense that oversights these programs to make sure that they're doing testing the right way. Uh, primary job was to report to Congress on the status of the programs, how the testing was going, what they were finding was right, what was wrong. So it was a desk job in the Pentagon. I enjoyed it. had a lot of uh, freedom of movement uh, in terms of uh, where I went to go evaluate tests, uh, because I was uh, from the fleet and my boss was not, uh, they took uh, my credibility in terms of what was working in testing and what wasn't. The Super Hornet was being tested at that time, so I, I was writing testimony that was going to Congress about how the airplane was doing in test. It was an important job, didn't involve any flying, but uh, it was an important job, and that was my first taste of the Pentagon. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Then you went to be commander of a carrier air wing one, if I'm correct there. What, what was that job? So I talked about the air wing in Japan. Uh, is, we're organized by squadrons, and every, all the squadrons are assigned to air wings. Uh, I was the air wing commander of carrier air wing one, which was based out of NAS Oceana in Virginia. There I had, I was responsible for the training and the manpower for all the squadrons, two F-14 squadrons, two F-18 squadrons, uh, Prowler Squadron, I haven't mentioned the Prowlers, E-2 Squadron. Uh, so all the COs reported up to me, and my job was, again, to make sure the Air Wing was trained and ready to go fight in combat. Wow, I mean, that responsibility must have been, the pressure's on right there. How did you cope with that? Uh, it's a great job. I would argue that uh, any carrier aviator would like to be an Air Wing commander. The, the career paths are such that if you continue to advance a major command, you're either going to be an air wing commander or the CEO of an aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. Um, both great jobs. 
I got picked for the Airman Commander route mostly because I don't think I had the academics to make it for the, for the nuke power program. Um, but it's, it is an awesome responsibility, but because you've got such great people working for you, all the squadron COs, uh, it's it's a very rewarding job. I can imagine, yeah. We went out to Fallon. It was my job as the Airman Commander because now the, our Airman was being trained to make sure that uh, we all learned and we were ready to go to combat. The guy I reported to was the battle group commander, the Admiral, and it was our job to make sure that everyone was ready to go do the tasking that we were required to do. Great job. Brilliant. And did you get to fly much in this job? I flew quite a bit, uh, particularly as a deputy airwing commander. I spent more time with the squadron. So there I was flying the F-14 and the F-18 off the ship with all the squadrons. Flew a little bit with the E-2s, a little bit with the S-3s, but uh, I flew quite a bit. Uh, so I went back to the Pentagon again. <laughs> time working on the Navy staff, and I was the executive assistant to the title of the Admiral as a director of air warfare. And his job, our job of the staff, was to set the requirements for future budgets. Mm-hmm. It was our job to decide how many F-18s we wanted to buy, if we were going to invest in new radars, how many weapons we needed to buy, that sort of thing. Again, a staff job, but very important. Uh, and I was the executive director to the two-star that ran that division. And was coincidentally in the Pentagon at 9-11 when it got hit by an airplane. Mm. And so after this, was that your end of your U.S. Navy career? Right. I retired after that tour uh, at about 26 years. Loved every minute of it. If they'd let me do it again, I'd do it all over again. So, Phil, we're going to ask you a few personal questions. Uh, Do you have any hobbies? I do have hobbies. Uh, I'm a car guy. I've been a car guy forever. I like to take my car uh, out to the track for uh, track days and race around the track. Nice. Uh, I'm a fly fisherman. Not very good at it. I'm a <laughs> golfer. Not very good at that either. Uh, but I still fly. Uh, I became a glider pilot. And I'm a glider tow pilot. And I just got my certified flight instructor rating a couple months ago. So uh, Congrats. my plan is to keep flying as long as they let me. So have you got a favorite aircraft you've flown throughout your career out of every single type? Um, it's going to be a difficult one. <laughs> it's a difficult one. Uh, I'm glad that I got to fly the T-28, very first airplane I ever flew. Oh, wow, okay. There's a T-28 in a flight museum here in Virginia Beach that I look at, and I look at that airplane, and I realize that's the very first airplane I soloed in, and it's, it kind of boggles my mind. So I'm glad I got to fly that. Uh, the F-4 was uh, not the best airplane I've flown, but I'm glad I got to fly that. Uh, my license plate on my car says, flew F-4s. Oh, wow. And, and people still stop me about that because it's such an iconic airplane. It is. It is. But it's the best airplane I've ever flown, I'd say the F-14. Uh, uh, above all, the weapon system, the capability, uh, it's it's uh, iconic fighter jet that's ever been. I'm glad I flew the F-18 as well, but the F-14, I would call that my favorite. So is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown that you didn't? Uh, that's a good question, too. I never got to fly the Super Hornet, but uh, from the folks that I've talked to, uh, a lot of similarities between the airplanes. Uh, I've flown a little bit in the E-2, S-3, F-5. I'd love to, I'd love to have flown an F-15. Never got to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to fly an F-35. Although, uh, it's, it's, uh, that's all about the weapon system. 
Uh, it's not so much about the flying, in my yeah. opinion. I can say that. I'll never get to fly it. But but that's going to be an interesting airplane to come along. But uh, I, I think that I'm, I'd rather have flu F4s on my license plate than going to fly F-35. If you had to go to combat, what would you pick, the F-18 or the F-14? I'd pick the F-14. Uh, again, I was more familiar with it. Uh, in the, the battles we've been fighting lately, again, the F-14 was designed for the outer air battle in the Cold War, Six Phoenix being launched from 100 miles away against the Russian hordes. Mm-hmm. But as the airplane matured and we got the lantern pod, GPS weapons, laser-guided weapons, the fact that the F-14 had such long legs, it could carry a lot of weapons. It would have been a great platform for the battles in Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq. And I want to know, what are your future uh, predictions? I mean, with the F-35 coming in, do you think we'll still need people, LSOs, and as much uh, people on carriers? Great question. Um, Even the F-18 has, there's a new system, I don't know very much about it, but it's a new landing system called Magic Carpet that uh, makes it even easier to land the airplane on the carrier. Uh, from what I've heard about the F-35 and folks I've talked to work in the program, it's a very easy airplane to bring aboard. Um, but most of, that, most of the time it's easy to bring aboard is when it's calm deck, deck's not moving, weather's pretty nice. But when the deck starts to move and it's dark, I think there'll always be LSOs uh, on the back of the ship, as long as there's a pilot in the airplane. And I think what's going to be interesting to see is when we go to the unmanned aircraft how that's going to work out and there's been talk about do you have an lso out there if there's an unmanned airplane and what if the lso sees that the unmanned airplane is going to hit the ramp mm-hmm. if he hits the pickle switch and the wave off lights come on what does the unmanned airplane do at that point i don't know how they've sorted that out but i know that's been discussed and for myself and our viewers we have to know why you are called filthy um i get asked that a lot it's not really a good story but when i was in the f4 training squadron we were out to lunch at a uh, not a very respectable location, I will tell you. And uh, one of the instructors whose call sign was nasty just sort of looked over at me and said, filthy. First name being Phil, coming from a guy named Nasty. So filthy stuck. And even today, when I still talk to my Navy friends, a lot of people, I'm one of those guys who has a call sign where you're not quite sure what the guy's first name really is. Filthy <laughs> stuck. And I've been filthy for 30 years. That's brilliant. And finally, Phil, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Never. Um, I appreciate this opportunity. This is a great little uh, program you got going on here. No, thank you. Um, uh, I love talking about airplanes and cars. Um, Like hanging around airports. Love to fly. Brilliant. Well, Phil, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much.